We're going to start our session this morning with a bit of a prayer, shall we? Gracious God, we are uh, welcomed into your presence by the warmth of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you prepared a place for us at your table. We thank you that it is not by our merit, but by your mercy, by the very character of your heart, that we are brought into your world. We ask that you might teach us, that you might shape us, that this time together in reflection on the truth of your scripture might make us greater believers, better people to our neighbors, and those of deeper faith. In the name of our precious Lord, Jesus Christ, amen. Have any of you seen the TV show Alone? It's not my kind of TV show, but you'll recognize many of the sort of tropes. They're very relatively popular in recent years. And this is a show that you apply to be on on TV. You have to send in an application and prove that you're not just some guy off the street. Uh, Because the people who apply for this show are not normal, regular people. These are people who have intense wilderness survival skills. And as is true for anything, the contestants have a variety of reasons that they might want to be on this show, right? There's prize money. There's something there, right? Some of them go for that. For some of them, it's about demonstrating the width and depth of their survival skills, proving that they know what they're doing. And for some, maybe it's simply a challenge to be conquered, an opportunity to succeed at something. But essentially, these contestants are dropped off in the middle of essentially nowhere, and they have a limited number of objects they can bring with them, and using those objects, they have to, you guessed it, survive. So this means hunting and fishing and keeping themselves alive with food sustenance and foraging. It means making a camp and keeping themselves protected from the elements and the weather. It means avoiding predators when predators show up. And this particular show has two points of contact with the outside world. Once the people who have applied to be on and have been selected are flung into the far reaches of whatever world they're in. And the first point of contact is that there are often unannounced wellness checks. Maybe you've called a wellness check on your neighbor at some point through the police. This is sort of like that, in that they have medical professionals who show up to examine if the person who's competing uh, has enough physical capacity to continue to be on the show. If you've lost too much weight, if you've been sick for too long, then they pull you out. They say, you can't compete, you're too close to death, we can't allow this to happen. The second point of contact is that each person has a long-range, one-button communicator. And if they press that button, no matter the context or situation, they are taken out of the game. They send a helicopter to go get them, and they bring them back to civilization. That's how you get out of the game. And the final person in the wilderness, whether that's after one week or one year, is the person who wins the game. But you don't know, when you press that rescue button, where you're at in the lineup. Whether you're the first person out, or whether you've been the only one out in the wilderness for a month. We find these shows interesting for a variety of reasons, I think. Humans versus the wilderness is like a fun TV trope, right? You get Survivor, where they have competitions, or Survivor Woman. You can tell there's a theme in the naming of these TV shows. And there are a lot of reasons we like them. Many of us 
no offense, don't have the physical and mental discipline to do that, right? We don't have the internal wherewithal to go out and accomplish that kind of task. So we like to watch it. Maybe you appreciate the psychological elements of it, people being sort of made or remade back down to their barest self or perhaps transformed into a new version of themselves because of the adversity that they're facing. Maybe we like the idea of envisioning what we would do if we were in their shoes, but to do that from the comfort of our couch is a much better circumstance for us, at least for me. But these kinds of TV shows have been a hallmark of American television for several decades now. And a crucial component for all of these shows, no matter what form they come in, is that they have to place their life in the hands of somebody else. In these far-flung, distant places, they are conscious that their ability to get themselves out of their circumstance is non-existent. There is no world in which they could find their way back even if they had to. Only those who are on the outside can help them escape. Only the people running the show can rescue them. Do you ever feel that way in your life? Darkness all around you? Enemies on every side? Maybe you're not being chased by a polar bear like there was one last season, but the stress of your everyday life might as well be a predator, stalking you, dogging you, taking over your every thought, wearing you out. Maybe it's not the threat of wind and rain, but the threat of keeping up appearances, making sure that nobody knows quite how much you're suffering, quite how burdened you are. Maybe it's physical, but not dehydration in a desert, but chronic illness, or something acute. And it could even be the everyday essentials, like keeping yourself fed and making sure your home is tidy and tending to your basic hygienic needs. Even those might feel as impossible to you as being left in a forest to forage for something to eat. There is no shame in the struggle. And no one person struggles exactly the same. No matter if your burdens were perfectly identical, your struggle would not be the same. And not all of our struggles are inside ourselves. Some of them are problems of financial instability, social exile, structural inequality, job anxieties, family challenges. All of these things beyond your ability to address them. And many of the writings in the scriptures feel these things too. Burdened, stressed, angry, betrayed, anxious, hurt. We have a lot of this in the Psalms. And we even have an entire category for them in the Psalms. There's so many. These ideas of lamenting over the weight of our sin, the weight of our struggle. And some of these psalms talk about exterior threats. Some of them talk about interior threats. Most of them talk about both. And this morning, we're going to reflect together on a reading from Psalm 143, where the writer is communicating what they're feeling, what they need from God. God, the only one they know, can rescue 
then. This is a psalm of survival and a psalm of transformation. It is a psalm where the speaker requests honestly that God would do for them what they cannot do for themselves. So we're going to read in Psalm 143. We'll start in verse 5 and read through the end. I remember the days of old. I think about all your deeds. I meditate on the works of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me or I shall go down like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear of your steadfast love in the morning, for in you I put my trust. Tell me the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Save me, O Lord, from my enemies. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on a level path. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your steadfast love, cut off my enemies and destroy all my adversaries. For I am your servant. Reading the psalm, we see the shared struggle between us and the writer. They're challenged by many of the same things that challenge us. In the first few verses of the song, the ones that we did not read, The psalm writer speaks of their enemies all around them, darkness encircling them, the challenges of their lives that weigh them down so that they can barely move. They acknowledge that there is so much to address before they can be freed from this and that they cannot do it by their own hand. Our first section of the text reminds us of this truth. God, you have been good, the writer says. You have been. I remember, and I need your rescue now. They remind God, these olden days you did, these mighty things, these magical deeds. Now, in this moment, I am reaching out to you. Desperate. More so than if my soul was a thirsty tongue in the middle of the desert. Please, they beg, answer me soon, O God. My internal strength is failing me. I cannot take it. There's also this touch of fear as they say, do not hide your face from me. Look at my suffering. Because if you don't, I might as well just die. There is a deep desperation at the heart of this psalm writer as they communicate with God about their distress. But even in the midst of that, we see that they seem clear on one central truth, that God is the one who can help them out of this place of suffering. The next section of the text expresses something else, asking God to lead them in the way of truth. They say to God, when I get up in the morning, let me hear on the wind, in my room, in the house, in the bird song. Let me hear of your constant love. You are the only place I fully place my trust. They ask God to teach them the ways of God, to save them because God is the one who carries their soul and saves them from their enemies. 
Because you are my God, the writer says, teach me your ways. I don't want to walk somebody else's path. You are my God. Teach me your will. Let me follow in your way. If you do, the psalm writer promises, I will be led by your spirit onto an even path. This rescue cannot come soon enough, even in spite of their clear remembrance of God as rescuer. They can't make an even path with their own hands. They know that. But if God teaches them and if the Spirit leads them, then they will find their way to that place of peace. The final portion of Psalm 143 carries a confidence and joy that is maybe quieter in the first few sections. The psalmist believes because of who God is that God will rescue them, because God has done it before. This is an idea that we find more than once in the Psalms and in other portions of the scriptures, that God's actions in the past indicate how God will definitely act in the future. And sometimes this is true, but it is the most important element of that truth, the one that is truer than that, is that God's character is what causes God to act. Not some previous pattern of living, but who God is at God's core. Because God is a God who rescues, God will rescue again, not the other way around. And the psalm writer reminds God that it is out of God's character that God comes to aid, that God preserves their life. By your steadfast love, they say to God, cut off my enemies, destroy all who come against me, because I am your servant. There is a submission in this last phrase, quietly acknowledging that God is accomplishing God's will, not just the desires of the writer. Even if all of the things that the writer has said is true, this part is the most clear. God does things for God's glory, which includes our rescue, but not because God can be manipulated by our prayers. God is not a vending machine where you put in Reminders of good company policy, prayers, legal precedents, and you get good out because you've proved it. You've paid your debt. Instead, God works in God's own way. But because of our relationship to God, we have the right to ask God for a rescue. Sometimes when we read the scripture, we're looking to see a character who we most relate to in the text. Sometimes we're trying to draw out a universal truth. Sometimes we're observers on a point in history trying to understand what has happened. And I think the psalm for us today is none of those things, but rather a chance to follow in the example of the writer, to mirror their decisions. They, like we are, suffering under heavy burdens, inside and outside. And what do they do about it? They ask God for a rescue. And I see three simple moves that we can mirror in our own time of prayer when we feel that burden and wait. The first is to speak honestly about our situation. One thing the writer is really good at in this psalm is not pretending that things are better than they are. 
They speak with openness about their struggle. They acknowledge the challenges and how those challenges make them feel. They're not trying to seem strong, not for God and not for any of the rest of us. They're open about the burden that they carry and their great need. And they're conscious that they can't work this out by themselves. No amount of good efforts is going to get them out. Only divine intervention. And the second is precisely that, to ask God to intervene and to believe that God will answer. This is a tricky one because even to get ourselves to the point of readiness to ask God can be challenging. We don't like asking for help. We want to seem like we can do it, that we have it together, that we're strong enough, that our faith is good, should be its own virtue. But the writer is right to say that without God's rescue, there is no rescue at all. And so we learn, and in our own prayers, we can be bold enough, brave enough, to ask God to act on our behalf. Maybe you worry that someone else needs God's rescue more. Their needs are greater than your own. But good news, there is no maximum limit to answered prayers. No top number of life preservers you get thrown. God has more than enough. The second challenge means trusting also that God will answer, not always in the way that we want, not always in the time that we want, but it means believing that God is listening in our desperation and distress. The third thing is to be responsible for our role in the rescue. We know with clarity that God does not need human action to enact God's will in the world. But God has offered us time and again the chance to participate in God's work. And that includes in this situation. God welcomes us to participate out of love for us and desire that we might be changed, transformed. And this means, as the psalmist has shared, that we must follow in the leading of God. That when the Spirit leads us to an even plane, a clear path, that we have to take it. It means that we are God's servants even when we are unsure what God is doing, even when we are suffering. It means asking God to rescue us. Our participation is a beautiful gift and it is given to us by our God. It is a gift that the psalm writer does not take lightly. It is our work to do the same, to carry our part to demonstrate our commitment to God, believing that we are not left alone. If we were to start a list to count, to number the burdens, of this people in this community. It would take us a very long time. Each of you carries things that you sometimes cannot even speak. External weights, internal weights, some you may not even be able to see. In your prayers for rescue, because we need a rescue, in your prayers this week, for yourself, For others, keep these practices in mind. Speak honestly. 
ask for intervention. Remember your role. By following the path of the psalm writer, we can seek and wait for God's rescue from the difficulties that are all around us. You already know that God does not answer every prayer, every request, in the way, in the time, and the method that we wish. To believe that or to wish for that is to worship an evacuation button and not the God of the universe. We follow a God who acts and rescues because of a plan, a much greater plan than we can understand. But it doesn't mean that God does not tell us to ask. God invites us to ask for a rescue. Part of trusting God's work in the world and following God's lead means being brave enough and vulnerable enough to reach out your hand, to ask. The sincerity of the Psalms offers us an awareness of ourselves, an awareness of God, not always a promise of resolution in this life. But by God's mercy, we know that all things will be restored. By God's hand, somehow when that divine love comes in the end of all things to rescue us. You've been listening to me, Pastor Kana Moore, at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members, attenders, and friends. The financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus, to those local, national, and international missions, and they help keep these podcasts free. If you would like to share a monetary gift with us, please visit our website at hayeschristianchurch.org and click on the donate button. Or you may mail your gift to P.O. Box 1111, Hayes, Kansas, 67601. If you have any questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our website and click on the Contact Us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you as you seek to follow Him.